0: You are listening to The Just Powers Podcast, a series devoted to supporting and disseminating the work of researchers, activists, artists, and theorists that provide conceptual tools for imagining feminist and decolonial energy transition for more livable futures for all.
1: Series 2 of The Just Powers Podcast was recorded at Village Sound Studio in Halifax, Nova Scotia, located on traditional Mi'kmaq territory, and was made possible by support from Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada funding, and the Cool Institute of Advanced Study.
0: Today we will be reading Performing Sovereignty Forces to be Reckoned with by Dr. Carla Taunton. This text is included in the collection More Caught in the Act, an anthology of performance art by Canadian women, edited by Joanna Householder and Tanya Mars and published by Our Text in 2016. More Caught in the Act includes 29 comprehensive profiles of artists from across Canada, along with five contextual essays that place current performance strategies by women within broader art historical and cultural contexts. In the text by Dr. Taunton, she provides a critical account of several performance art interventions by Indigenous artists to explore the ways in which Indigenous performance art is connected to customary practices of transmitting histories, knowledges, and cosmologies. Dr. Carla Taunton is an Associate Professor in the Division of Art History and Contemporary Culture at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design University, and an Adjunct Associate Professor in the Department of Cultural Studies at Queen's. Taunton's areas of expertise include Indigenous Arts and Methodologies, Contemporary Canadian Art, Museum and Curatorial Studies, as well as theories of decolonization, anti-colonialism, and settler responsibility. Storytelling and embodied
2: practices are central components of indigenous ways of knowing and being. Embodied practices situate the body as a tool through which ways of knowing and being are articulated in movement, gesture, and orality. Within the diverse and distinct indigenous nations across the Americas, histories have and continue to be recorded, enacted, and remembered through the performative act. Performance, then is and has always been the living archive of indigenous nations. Stories performed are the documents of indigenous histories, and furthermore, they resist the erasure of indigenous experience executed by the apparatus of settler colonialism, by the archive, the academy, and the museum. The long-standing history of the performative act as a means to assert indigeneity from within settler colonial spaces is exemplified by the world fairs, Wild West shows, and vaudeville theater performances of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Indigenous performers as storytellers, knowledge keepers, actors, orators, and performance artists have embodied the ways of knowing and being through performance since time immemorial. In this way, Indigenous performance art is connected to the customary practices of transmitting histories, knowledges, and cosmologies. Indigenous women's performances tell important stories about their lived experiences while fueling a dialogue about historic and contemporary individual and collective identities. Established performance artists such as Rebecca Belmore, Laurie Blondeau, Cheryl LeRondel, and Dana Claxton have claimed space for, supported, and mentored a new generation or generations of performance-based artists among them, Ursula Johnson, Amy Malboeuf, Vanessa Dion Fletcher, Maria Hupfield, Tanya Lucan Linklater, Carolyn Monet, Skina Reese, and Jamie Black. Taken together, their performances explore Indigenous embodied practice and cultural knowledge, providing potent examples of performance based assertions of self determined representation, cultural continuance, and sovereignty. Listening and bearing witness to the stories performed by Johnson, Malbeuf, Dion Fletcher, and Lucan Linklater reveals the ways in which their performances write, create, and produce culturally localized Indigenous lived experience. By culturally localized, I mean that these artists, who are from distinct nations and territories across North America, create works that draw from their unique Indigenous identities. Recognizing the critical practices employed by these artists as research, Elucidates how their work contributes through performance to the writing of decolonized Indigenous stories, histories, memories. In August 2014, Mi'kmaq artist Ursula Johnson reinstalled her hot looking intervention at the Charlottetown Night Festival, Art in the Open. This interactive, choreographed, collaborative performance was first mounted during Halifax's Night Festival, Nocturne 2013. Johnson's work specifically responded to the 2012 No Doubt music video called Looking Hot, which used romanticized Hollywood Western iconography, dressing up Gwen Stefani as a white, quote-unquote, Indian princess, and reveling in the appropriation of Indigenous material culture. For the Halifax performance, Johnson featured salto powwow dancer Burt Milberg dancing from 6 p.m. to midnight in the storefront window of the Mills Department Store, a luxury shop on Spring Garden Road. During this endurance performance, Milberg danced in full regalia to a loop of the song Looking Hot. Throughout the performance, he interacted with audience members to pose for pictures and videos. Johnson states that hot-looking, quote, was a response to the appropriation and commodification of indigenous cultures and identity, end quote. Almost a year later, I had the opportunity as a settler curator and scholar to collaborate with Inuk scholar and curator Heather Igluliorti to invite Johnson to restage this poignant performance. Again, dancing in a storefront from 6 p.m. to midnight to the lyrics blaring through the city center.
3: Do you think I'm looking hot? I know you want to stare. You can't help it and I don't care. So look at me, because that's what I want. Go ahead and stare and take a picture, please, if you need. Yeah, and I think that says it all.
2: Johnson and Milberg claim space for self-determined representation that advances the visibility of urban Indigenous experience and Indigenous presence in public spaces. The act of claiming space in relation to contemporary art also addresses the exclusion of Indigenous voices throughout Canadian settler society. The performance activated conversations about Indigenous presence and its invisibility in a Canadian urban centre and invited dialogue about the appropriation of Indigenous material culture and the stereotypical representations of Indigenous peoples rampant in popular culture. The No Doubt video is but one example in an enormous archive of romantic colonial representations of Indigenous women and Indigenous culture in general. In her essay, Titled Independent Identities. Lucy Lepard contextualizes the need to decolonize representations of Indigenous women by emphasizing the urgency of contemporary Aboriginal women artists to reclaim and subvert objectifying images. The historical identity of Indian women
3: as seen through the eyes of the paternalistic culture that has represented them for some 150 years, both resembles and differs from the images of Western women. Indigenous women, like their male counterparts, were seen as immoral savages and children of nature. They were idealized as Indian princesses and tragic maidens, paddling their canoes bravely over waterfalls, sending their men off to battle, stoically enduring terrible hardships. At the same time, even in today's somewhat cleaned-up media, These pocahontas Sacagawea images continue to conflict with the other image of the mute, or dumb, and submissive squaw. Stereotypes of the Indian women as either spiritual warrior goddess or squaw are Western-created counterparts of the Madonna or Whore syndrome. They neatly bypass most realistic modern female identities.
2: The resistance to and rejection of this type of representational violence by artists such as Johnson contributes to the creation of an Indigenous archive of self-determined representations. Hot Looking can be seen as a performative commentary on the impacts of colonization on Indigenous communities in North America, and paradoxically, as this performance references the struggle for Indigenous self-representation in the Canadian context, it also articulates Indigenous presence and its erasure in Canadian nationalist narratives and in settler consciousness. Indigenous Sovereignty, Cultural Continuance and Resistance. Mohawk curator and scholar Stephen Loft proposes the following in Transference, Tradition, Technology, Native New Media Exploring Visual and Digital Culture.
3: When members of a community assert control over their own lives and culture, politically, socially, and artistically, they go beyond oppression. Thus, control of our image becomes not only as an act of subversion, but of resistance and ultimately liberation. What is at stake here is not how the image is presented, aesthetics aside, but who controls it. This is the fundamental challenge to Aboriginal artists and cultural producers.
2: Loft's assertion here provides a clear framework through which to critically engage and view Indigenous art, Indigenous sovereignty. As Jolene Rickard argues... The struggle for autonomous nationhood embedded in a political discourse of sovereignty is a critical factor for the ongoing presence of indigeneity in the Americas. Indigenous sovereignty identifies Indigenous peoples as nations living within the borders of Canada and declares the right of Indigenous nations and individuals to autonomy over all aspects of Indigenous life land, culture, politics, and economy. Sovereignty is nationhood. Vanessa Dion Fletcher's performance-slash-intervention mnemonic memory embodies the call for sovereignty. This durational performance recreates imagery from the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt, a historic treaty between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations in the 17th and 18th centuries to, quote, share the sustenance of the bowl, the land north and south of the Great Lakes, end quote, by using chalk paint on the cities, in this case Chicago's, concrete surfaces wampum belts made out of whelk and quahog shells have been and continue to be made by indigenous nations in the atlantic and great lakes regions as mnemonic records of treaties individual and collective experiences and historic events in other words wampum belts are documents of indigenous histories and are part of indigenous nations archives dion fletcher was invited to engage with the site of wicker park bucktown and chose the Evergreen Avenue slash Wicker Park Avenue intersection as her site of intervention, and arguably her site to ignite Indigenous sovereignty. As the artist's statement describes, The recreation begins by
3: marking the rows of the belt with a chalk line. The slow emergence of the belt in public spaces allows for conversation between viewers and artists in order to engage the public in conversation about Indigenous and colonial history in Chicago and North America.
2: Here, Dion Fletcher claims space to assert both sovereignty and historic treaty relationships between Indigenous and settler communities. By marking sidewalks with the stylized lines and colors of wampum belts, she creates a site for cross-cultural exchange and remembrance. In her presentation, Weaving a Public Art Wampum, At the 2015 Native American Art Studies Association Conference in Santa Fe, Dion Fletcher stated this.
3: The slow emergence of the belt in public spaces allows for conversation between viewers and myself. I can engage the audience in a dialogue about indigenous and colonial history in Chicago and North America. Simple questions asked from curious passersby, such as, what are you doing and why are you doing it? allow me to recount the history of the dish with
2: one spoon wampum belt and how it relates to the city and park we are in. The performance affirms Indigenous presence and urban experience by inserting Indigenous memory through the poetic act of marking wampum on the concrete sidewalks. She writes, quote, This history and relationship is one that is tied to the people, and indigenous nations on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border and cannot be limited and defined by the history and borders of the nation states. end quote. Dion Fletcher contributes to the project of decolonizing public space and at the same time asserts indigenous sovereignty and historic nation-to-nation treaty relationships. Decolonizing Framework The current project of decolonization simultaneously privileges Indigenous ways of knowing and reveals historic and contemporary colonial structures. There are many definitions and strategies of decolonization, one of which calls for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Canada to come to know their distinct and collective histories. Indigenous women's performance art claims space for advancing decolonial agendas. In many ways, Decolonization is about imagining and activating a nation-to-nation relationship between Indigenous nations in Canada, as well as between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. In her pivotal book, Decolonizing Methodologies, Linda Tuahawai Smith puts forward 25 Indigenous projects, which outline key frameworks for effecting decolonization. The projects include claiming, testimony, storytelling, celebrating survival, Remembering, indigenizing, intervening, revitalizing, connecting, reading, writing, representing, gendering, envisioning, reframing, restoring, returning, democratizing, networking, naming, protecting, creating, negotiating, discovering, and sharing. As Tuahua Smith concludes, these projects are not definitive, they overlap and connect. My own research draws on this urgent list of Indigenous projects, utilizing claiming, remembering, networking, negotiating, gendering, intervening, and storytelling, among others, as key lenses through which to address the complicated and multifaceted practices of Indigenous performance art. To Hawaii Smith's projects are fundamental strategies that merge Indigenous methodologies with critical inquiry. She argues that, quote, Indigenous methodologies are often a mix of existing methodological approaches and Indigenous practices, end quote. It is worth quoting Tuhuai Smith's discussion of these projects. The implications
3: for Indigenous research would have been derived from the imperatives inside the struggles of the 1970s seems to be clear and straightforward. The survival of peoples, cultures, and languages. The struggle to become self-determining the need to take back control of our destinies. These imperatives have demanded more than rhetoric and acts of defiance. These acts of reclaiming, reformulating, and reconstituting indigenous cultures and languages have required the mounting of an ambitious research program, one that is very strategic in its purpose and activities and relentless in its pursuit of social justice. Themes such as cultural survival Self-determination, healing, restoration, and social justice are engaging Indigenous researchers and Indigenous communities in a diverse array of projects. The projects intersect with each other in various ways.
2: Anishinaabe performance artist Maria Hupfeld's Survival and Other Acts of Defiance embodies many of Tuhawai Smith's projects and beautifully asserts Indigenous presence and resilience into the gallery and also in public spaces. Survival and Other Acts of Defiance is an endurance performance exhibited as a video installation and was part of Beat Nation, a touring group exhibition of contemporary indigenous art in 2012-14. In this work, the looped video projection shows Hupfeld jumping up and down in one place wearing a pair of jingle boots. Her handcrafted boots are made of felt and tin jingles and reference the jingle dress dance, a women's dance performed at powwows that is considered an act of healing. This work by Hupfeld can also be viewed as an assertion of cultural continuance and self-determined representation of Indigenous women. The works explored here become part of the decolonization project by redressing histories and by bringing forward diverse Indigenous women's perspectives. I invite you as the reader, or rather the witness, to consider these performances as examples of Indigenous activism as well as declarations of resilience. Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women An issue urgently vocalized by artists Rebecca Belmore, Laurie Blondeau, and many others are the stories and memories of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, MMIW. In Canada, over 1,000 Indigenous women are missing or have been murdered since the 1980s. This national crime also contextualizes Indigenous women's employment of body-based art practices. Elders, educators activists, scholars, and artists' responses to this ongoing colonially-based violence join the project by Christy Belcour, Walking with Our Sisters, 2012 Ongoing, Jamie Black's Red Dress Project, 2011 Ongoing, Belmore's Vigil, from 2012, and 1017, 2014, and Blondo's Asini Iscu, 2009, in Demanding Justice from Local, Provincial, and National Governments. At the same time, these performances and artists' responses commemorate the women, who in many cases are unnamed and memorialize their lives. In her curatorial statement on Blondeau's *Assini Isku, Wanda Nanabush states the following. This performance piece
3: comes out of a knowledge that Aboriginal women are most likely to experience violence based on how they are stereotyped. This performance memorializes all the missing and murdered Aboriginal women in Canada, a contemporary colonial legacy.
2: Nanabush's analysis clearly connects historic and contemporary representational violence that is all too prevalent in settler society and throughout Western popular culture to violence experienced by Indigenous bodies. The Red Dress Project is an aesthetic response to this crisis by Jamie Black in the form of an installation-based intervention that gives substance to the absence of the missing women's lives. It can also be seen as a call to action, echoing the many put forward over the years by Indigenous leaders and community members. In the project statement, Black remarks, The project seeks to collect 600 red dresses
3: by community donation that will later be installed in public spaces throughout Winnipeg, and across Canada as a visual reminder of the staggering number of women who are no longer with us. Through the installation, I hope to draw attention to the gendered and racialized nature of violent crimes against Aboriginal women, and to evoke a presence through the marking of absence.
2: Since 2011, this work has been exhibited across Canada and continues to activate conversations about missing and murdered Indigenous women. I see the Red Dress Project in relation to embodied performance-based practices as a haunting reminder of the loss and the non-presence of these women's bodies. Indigenous Feminisms, Redressing Indigenous Women's Histories Indigenous women performance artists activate their bodily artistic practices as a means to resist marginalization. Their embodied practices decolonize memories, histories, and stories through their use of the body and the performative act. Drawing on feminisms which foreground the necessity of privileging multiple indigenous systems of knowledge, the artist's performances can be considered strategies of decolonization by way of remembering the past through the present. The lens of Indigenous feminism supports a productive analysis of Indigenous women's performance art and highlights the ways in which the performances by Johnson, Malbuff, Dion Fletcher, and Lucan Linklater embody a politics of Indigenous self-determination, cultural continuance, and cultural sovereignty. In Portals, Métis artist Amy Malbuff, concealed in a full-body spandex costume, uses a fertilizer spreader as her performative tool. She creates large salt circles on the ground, dispersing salt of different colors, usually white, red, and blue, into rings of ephemeral sculpture. The performance also invites audience members in both public and gallery spaces to consider the presence-slash-absence of the artist's body and her masked identity, perhaps leading individual viewers to question their expectations of Indigenous presence and the invisibility of Indigenous people's issues and histories. Albus asserts that, The portal I create is an act of reclaiming
3: space and asserting myself into the space as an Indigenous woman while simultaneously concealing my identity in an attempt to ask the viewer to consider my humanity. The portals are a void, an entry, an exit, the earth, the moon, the universe, a womb. The circle is representative of Indigenous worldviews of all things happening in cyclical patterns, of all things being in constant motion, the portal of salt embodies the fine line between poison and medicine, as salt is necessary to sustain life, but is toxic in large quantities. Even though the portal of salt eventually dissolves, and there is little physical evidence of it ever existing, the salt will always be there as it is a highly stable
2: substance. As a recent field of inquiry, Indigenous feminism is connected to and has developed from histories of Indigenous women's activism and cultural projects. These diverse projects of resistance and intervention continue to address gender-based discrimination and attempt to establish social justice for Indigenous women and their communities. Indigenous women scholars and their allies have recently made strong arguments for the urgency of indigenous feminisms in the mobilization of indigenous women's rights on cultural, land, and political sovereignty. Indigenous feminism remains an important site of gender struggle that engages the crucial issues of cultural identity, nationalism, and decolonization particular to indigenous contexts. As a means to establish social justice for women and communities, Indigenous feminisms aim to, quote, counter social erasure and marginalization, end quote. This being said, it is important to recognize that indigenous feminism is a contentious theoretical and thematic approach. The very notion of indigenous feminism has been criticized as being potentially entrenched in white and or colonial forms of critique and inquiry. The current scholarship on Indigenous Feminisms acknowledges the fraught historical relationship between Indigenous women and feminism and supports advancing inquiry based on Indigenous women's interests and perspectives. Metis Cree scholar Kim Anderson in quote affirmations of an Indigenous Feminist end quote, raises some of the contentious issues voiced by Indigenous women and communities about feminism, such as the focus of feminist inquiry on rights and individual autonomy rather than on responsibilities and collective autonomy and the potential exclusion of indigenous men within a feminist framework and struggles for social justice and self-determination. She writes, quote, These sentiments make it hard for an indigenous woman such as myself to identify as a feminist. Yet there are many kinds of feminism, and indigenous feminism in my own thought and practice is anything but negative or exclusionary, end quote. In this way, Indigenous self-definitions of feminism are inclusive and engage with collective and communal Indigenous concepts of autonomy and responsibility. A framework of Indigenous feminism recognizes the impact of colonization on Indigenous women's social, cultural, and political roles, and simultaneously creates space for the recognition of agency and autonomy— the colonial project systematically removed and subjugated women's political and cultural authority and power in aboriginal social frameworks. The assimilationist project experienced by indigenous peoples in North America attempted to erode indigenous ways of living, knowing, and being by aggressively incorporating patriarchal societal structures and paternalistic legislative policies, and by marginalizing women's roles in their nations. This process was mirrored in how Indigenous women were represented by Euro-North American society. Addressing the impact of colonization on Indigenous women can bring to light the connections between political marginalization and colonial violence exemplified by the MMIW. Indigenous women have experienced both representational and sexual violence throughout the colonial and neocolonial periods. I contend that Indigenous women performance artists activate their body-based practices as a means to resist, intervene, and confront the marginalization of both Indigenous women and men. In so doing, their performances connect and explore politics, cultural production, and activism. Indigenous feminism, as mentioned above, creates space for the assertion of diverse Indigenous perspectives and stories histories and focuses on the concepts of storytelling, cultural memory, collective autonomy, and responsibility. In this way, Indigenous feminism incorporates sovereignty, self-determination, autonomy, agency, and decolonization into its political framework. Much of the work created by this new generation of Indigenous performance artists confronts the lack of representation of women's stories and histories and it contributes to a new archive of self-determined representation of Indigenous women by Indigenous women. Ravel, by Amy Melboeuf, begins with the artist tied to a permanent large wooden sculptural installation on the front lawn of the Art Gallery of Greater Victoria. Her body is wrapped in a long piece of canvas. She slowly attempts to unravel herself from the canvas, and in so doing moves through the gallery's public space she ravels and unravels her body and struggles to free herself from the off-white material and its sculptural anchor. With graceful yet strained movement, she detaches and breaks free from the wooden installation and the canvas cloth, but the act of unraveling her body from the canvas reveals that she is further bound by a matey sash. The sash is braided into the canvas and is also braided into Malbouf's hair. She sits on a rock to unbraid the canvas and the sash, freeing the two materials from each other. She folds the sash and sits for a moment of pause with the sash folded and held with open hands. Malbouffe stands and walks away from the performance site. She states that, This work is an illustration
3: of the lack of representation of Indigenous women in the documentation, writings, and understandings of Indigenous histories, in particular, Métis history. Much of an academic and artistic work on, about, for, with, by Métis people is centered around the lives and actions of men. The most obvious example, Louis Riel, is undoubtedly an incredibly important person to our cultural heritage and identity. However, it seems that he is the only history of our people that Métis people themselves and non-Métis people make reference to. So much of our history and identity in all aspects is owed to the lives and work of Métis women.
2: Ravel highlights the resilience of Indigenous communities in the struggle towards self-determination. As a site for remembrance, performances such as Ravel redress the processes of erasure embedded in the colonial process. malbush writes, quote, This performance is in honor of all the Indigenous women, Métis women whose histories and contributions have been forgotten, end quote. Indigenous Space Remembrance The works of Amy Malboeuf and Ursula Johnson open up space for the performance of Indigenous experiences and the creation of performative memory sites commemorating Indigenous knowledge. Ursula Johnson's performance *Elmiet* at Nocturne in Halifax elucidated the relationship between contemporary Indigenous performance art and decolonizing processes such as Remembrance the artist led the audience on a walking tour of Halifax and distributed invitations for the performance that stated that she was quote-unquote hosting an event downtown at which a selected participant could be eligible for a cash prize. Johnson's harsh irony was that the cash prize denoted the bounty of 25 pounds sterling for the scalps of Mi'kmaq men, women, and children. Almit, a Mi'kmaq verb that means quote-unquote to go home, was a two-part performance that began with a parade through downtown. Johnson wore a hand-woven headpiece made of strands and bands of sweetgrass, maple, black-and-white ash, and cane reeds, which represented her hair, covering her eyes and falling down her back like a cape. The parade performance concluded at Grand Parade, a public Halifax square with a violent scalping ceremony. This ritualized performance was intended to be both symbolically and literally the last scalping of an indigenous person. Nathan Sack performed a traditional Mi'kmaq song, and there was the ceremonial removal of Johnson's headpiece, or rather, the act of, quote-unquote, scalping, performed by a volunteer audience member. The woven headpiece and Sack's performance were powerful acts of cultural continuance reclaiming the Mi'kmaq territories, now known as Halifax. Malmeat is a multifaceted performance revealing the violent history of colonialism. Scalping was a strategy of conquest for the French, English, and Mi'kmaq. British governors Edward Cornwallis and Charles Lawrence perpetuated bounty laws against indigenous peoples, and in 1756, Lawrence added into the law, quote, not just warrior scalps, but men, women, and children, end quote. Although the Nova Scotia government made a formal apology for the scalping bounty against Mi'kmaq people, as Johnson notes, quote, it's still on the books, and it's going to stay on the books until the federal government says we're going to take it off. And that hasn't happened, end quote. Johnson's performance does not seek to erase the history of the scalping law from Canadian consciousness. Instead, she calls for the removal of the law from legislation. Her performance exposes the brutalities of colonialism and the ways in which Indigenous peoples have endured its violence. In an interview before the performance, Johnson made the following remark. The selected
3: participant, whoever that may be, would be asked to step up to the podium and participate in the scalping ceremony. They're going to be told how it needs to be done, what it symbolizes, how significant it is as a last moment of history. It'll be the last Mi'kmaq scalp taken, and then we'll try to make change to have it removed from the books.
2: A review of Elme suggested that the reaction by some audience members to Johnson's performance highlighted the ongoing, quote, unease of facing racial issues concerning the treatment of Aboriginals in the past and present, end quote. Johnson's scalping was said to have, quote, left many festival goers uncomfortable and even angered a reaction Johnson attributes to people being afraid to ask questions, quote. The fact that Johnson's performance received such reactions brings attention to the need for education on the Indigenous histories that underlie contemporary realities. In many cases, such as in this work, Indigenous performance art creates sites of witnessing the ongoing trauma of colonization. As Marcia Crosby has noted, Trauma in Aboriginal
3: performance art practice implicitly reveals the precariousness of any established Aboriginal history, and the reenactment of trauma, individual pain confronting collective pain, performance art does not make meaning or create closure. Instead, it invites its audience to keep watch over the absent meaning that continues to distress us
2: all. Johnson's Radical Act reveals a traumatic history of violence against Indigenous peoples. It was also a moment of resistance, a powerful moment of healing, and a potential transformative moment for settler-Indigenous relations. Almey created a site of exchange and dialogue as Johnson asked her audience to consider taking action along with her to mobilize against the scalping bounty and revoke its persistent place in legislative law. The mobilization of Indigenous sovereignty in a settler nation-state such as Canada raises important questions about place and space, for instance. What constitutes Indigenous spaces? And in the context of Indigenous performance art, how do art space practices claim space for Indigenous voices and perspectives? In Acting Out Claiming Space Aboriginal Performance Art Series, Alutic performance artist Tanya Lucan linklater presented her new work, Give Me an A. For this series, the artist engaged with the question, how does an Indigenous voice contend with overarching colonial histories and the extreme social conditions that have formed the city of Kingston, Ontario? Luke and Linklater's performance launched the series at the corner of University Avenue and Union Street on the Queen's University campus. Dressed in a cheerleading costume with fur detailing, the artist performed a traditionally-based song she composed for her community in Alutik, incorporating her spoken words into a choreographed dance of slow, fluid movement. Through gesture and voice, she developed her song, slowing the words into brief, spoken sounds. This breaking down of the language speaks to the attempt to eradicate indigenous languages. The act of deconstructing her own aboriginal language and traditional song is a strategy that alludes to her northern experience and connection to Alutic territory and her brief southern experience studying in the United States. Throughout her performance, she incorporates spoken words into her song. From the island we come, from the land and the ocean
3: we come. The land on one side, the ocean on the other. This is our land, this is our village, this is our home.
2: Lucan Linklater's abstraction of Aleutic language also brings to the surface the loss of cultural knowledge while asserting the continuance of Aboriginal language. Her props, a snare drum, megaphones, a cheerleading dress, all refer to Luke and Linklater's experience with the fanatical following of sports teams in the United States. This work's use of the megaphone recalls Rebecca Belmore's I Am Ia Watch O oh Mama Moen," speaking to their mother, created in response to the Oka crisis as a collaborative community-based performance. I am I Watch Oh Mama Moan Employs a beautiful and enormous wooden megaphone reminiscent of the birch bark cones used for moose calling in Northern Ontario. Jolene Rickard suggests that this piece quote created a site for the recognition of the historical erasure of Aboriginal voices and empowered Aboriginal people to speak to all of their relations. End quote. Both artists' use of the megaphone literally negotiated and opened up space for Aboriginal voices. Lucan Linklater's performance occurred on St. Patrick's Day, a holiday co-opted by Canadians as a free-for-all day of inebriation. This aggressive situation led to a collective exercise of claiming and protecting the corner for Lucan Linklater's performance. Over 50 audience members assisted in fending off young revelers celebrating St. Patrick's Day, who not only tried to walk through the established performance area, but also attempted to take her megaphone, play her drum, and use her equipment. They ended up drunkenly taunting her from across the street. But this claiming was then reversed through the artist's own response to the student audience members. In an assertive voice, Lucan Linklater used Alutic to challenge the youth to participate in a more meaningful dialogue. She turned to them and through her megaphone repeated in Alutic, quote, this is our land. This is our village. This is our home. End quote. As an audience member, I witnessed the apathy, disrespect, and disregard for Indigenous peoples and their stories. However, the power of Lucan Linklater's voice created a site for acknowledging the experiences and presence of the many Indigenous students attending the performance. The artist claimed her immediate space and claimed a space for Indigenous students and their experiences on the Queens campus. In Relationship or Transaction, from 2015 in Montreal, Vanessa Dion Fletcher carries a large bundle on her back through the commercial space of the Papier Art Fair. The work is a monumental scale reproduction or a reinterpretation of the Western Lake Covenant Chain Confederacy Wampum Belt from 1764. The beads are replaced by paper money referencing the historic currency beads and wampum held in both indigenous and early colonial North American society. Her wampum belt uses $5 bills as the purple quahog beads and replica white $5 bills as the white wealth beads. Dion Fletcher
3: explains. My reproduction uses Canadian currency as a weighted symbol of the power of the nation-state, intended to encourage the viewer to consider the colonial dimensions of Canadian society and in particular the role of money in bypassing and dissolving nation-to-nation treaty relationships. In this project, I am drawing on the rich and significant practice of wampum and its role in diplomacy. Researching wampum belts and the treaties and agreements that they signify has helped me to gain a greater understanding of myself with an Indigenous
2: community and nation in relationship to the Canadian state. Carrying the bundled relationship or transaction and unraveling the wampum belt in public space are strategic artistic interventions that harness conversations about treaty relationships and ultimately look to the past in order to reframe and reconstitute nation-to-nation relations. Dion Fletcher further notes that,
3: The performance of relationship or transaction makes three key points. The first is the ongoing commodification and appropriation of Indigenous culture. The second is a commentary on the government's modern claims processes, which view new treaties and claims for treaty infringement as cash transactions for land and resources, rather than the creation of balanced relationships between sovereign nations. Finally, Canada's wealth is historically derived, in part, from a failure to honour treaties. Ultimately, my project is about representing the validity of commitments made between the First Nations and settlers, commitments informed by respect for Indigenous rights to land and resources, the wealth derived from resources, and the right to protect both for time immemorial.
2: This work articulates how Indigenous nations occupied within the borders of North American nation-states are and have always been sovereign communities. Indigenous nations are nations now living within the borders of a settler nation-state. Throughout colonial and current neo-colonial projects, Indigenous peoples have resisted the land occupations, political encroachments, and cultural assimilist agendas of settler nation-states. In this way, sovereignty politics are significant in mobilizing Indigenous activism, negotiating decolonization, and asserting self-determination. A fundamental component in the mobilization of processes of decolonization is for settler societies to engage in, commit to, and take responsibility for learning colonial histories and understanding contemporary legacies that support and maintain white settler privilege on stolen indigenous lands. Recognition of indigenous nationhood and territories is essential. Afterthoughts The performative acts explored here evoke historical events, personal and familial stories, and cultural knowledge. Critical analysis of these performances draws out the ways in which Indigenous peoples have resisted, remembered, and continue to represent personal and collective memory despite ethnocide and assimilation. In this way, Indigenous performance strategies contribute to the process of decolonization and the project of sovereignty through acts of remembrance self-representation, and cultural continuance. By performing Indigenous stories that displace nationalist and colonialist narratives, performance artists such as Johnson, Dion Fletcher, Mal and Lucan Linklater articulate and embody a politics of self-determination and cultural sovereignty. I propose that overall and taken together, These performances contribute to a living archive that transmits Indigenous cultural memories through embodied practices to create self-representations of Indigenous people and lived experiences. Okanagan poet and storyteller Jeanette Armstrong articulates a similar message in her poem, Threads of Old Memory, in which she conceptualizes Indigenous memory and the role of the artist in the act of remembrance.
3: I speak and powerfully become actions, become memory in someone. I become different memories to different people, different stories, and the retelling of my place. I speak in a language of words formed of the actions of the past, words that become the sharing, the collective knowing, the links that become a people, the dreaming that becomes a history, the calling forth of voices, the sending forward of memory. I am the weaver of memory thread, twining past to future. I am the artist, the storyteller.
1: Today, your readers were Ursula Johnson and Mary Elizabeth Luca. Ursula Johnson is a multidisciplinary Mi'kmaq artist based in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Canada, whose work combines the Mi'kmaq tradition of basket weaving with sculpture, installation, and performance art. Dr. Mary Elizabeth Luca is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a digital media producer and director. This podcast is brought to you by Just Powers and was produced by Mary Elizabeth Luca and Jesse Beyer with sound recording by Luke Batsois and location production by Jason McIsaac at Village Sound Studio in Halifax, Nova Scotia situated on traditional Mi'kmaq territory and sound editing and mixing by Catlin W. Cusick at Sublet Sound temporarily located on the traditional territory of the Coast Salish people.